Well, good evening, and happy Thanksgiving to you all. We are grateful for God's many blessings. I'm grateful for all of you, and grateful that we have a group of people that get together, not just on Wednesdays, but also on Sundays, who love to study God's Word. Amen? I love to teach God's Word, but if nobody showed up, well, it wouldn't be as much fun. <laughs> so it's great to have you here. Uh, this evening we are starting a new book, actually. I hesitated, knowing that it was the Wednesday uh, before Thanksgiving. I thought, well, well, maybe we'll do something else. But you know what? Let's get right into it. The book of Ecclesiastes. This morning, this evening, not this morning, this, it's been a long day for me. I was up late. This evening, we are going to... Look at a book which has as its theme man's wisdom. And I know what you're thinking. Why would we study a book that teaches us about man's wisdom? Well, I don't know about you, but I have learned a lot of things by looking at things that are wrong. In fact, one of the ways that you can figure out what's right is by looking at something that's wrong. You can learn a lot of really good lessons from someone who does it wrong. If you have a boss or a teacher that makes mistakes, you can learn from their mistakes. We learn from our parents' mistakes. We learn from others' mistakes. So it's not always negative to observe something that isn't necessarily good or correct. In fact, when we studied the book of Job, we looked at a lot of different philosophies that were promoted by Job's counselors. They, quite frankly, were wrong. They were dead wrong. And yet we were able to learn so much about humanity, about God, about life, about the heart, about the soul. Well, Ecclesiastes is one of those books, all about man's wisdom. It gives to us an understanding of what life is like when we rely solely on our own wisdom and not on God's. Or when we take the wisdom that God has given us and either choose to disobey it or do something other than seek God's will with it. When we do that, we'll experience a life that is meaningless. And that, in many ways, is the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, man's wisdom is broken up into really just two ideas. They run throughout the book. One is that everything is meaningless. And, of course, that's apart from God. And that's man's wisdom. Man's wisdom cannot compare with God's wisdom. Let's open in a word of prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and I pray as we approach this book, which we study differently than any of the other books in the Bible, with maybe the exception of the book of Job, as we look at this, may we understand the benefit of studying your word and learning about man's wisdom, that we might always apply God's wisdom, your wisdom, instead. Give us wisdom, your wisdom, to know the truth, to know the difference between what's true and what's false, to be able to look at the world and make good decisions, to choose the right, not the wrong, to choose good and not evil, and to be fulfilled in our calling to love and to serve you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's talk a little bit about this book. Ecclesiastes is a Greek word. It's the Greek rendering of the Hebrew, koleheth, which means preacher debater, or even searcher. So it's someone that's looking. Seeker might even be accurate. There are many people in this world that are seeking. Some are not seeking, but most are seeking something, and many are seeking the wrong thing, 
and some are seeking the right thing in the wrong place. The biblical view of the authorship of this book attributes this book to Solomon. I think it becomes very clear uh, when you look at the book and you look at even the first verse. It says, the words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Uh, That becomes pretty clear, I think. But also in verse 12 of the first chapter, he says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. And it'll come up again, this idea that we're talking about a king in Jerusalem who calls himself the son of David. Now, it could be any one of David's descendants, because that word for son could mean a descendant. But when you consider the wisdom that Solomon had in his lifestyle, it makes a whole lot of sense that he, in fact, wrote this book. Therefore, it's accurate, and regardless of criticism, it's accurate to date its writing between 970 and 931 B.C. Of course, it's been copied, it's been translated, but the book was originally written, we believe, because we believe Solomon is the author, between 970 and 931 B.C., so it's it's quite an old book. Well, the subject, the great theme of this book, is given in verse 2. And in verse 2, we read, Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, some of your translations might say vanity. But whatever it is, it's the same thing, meaningless. And that really is, that is the whole idea, the great theme of this book. And it summarizes, appropriately summarizes, a life lived after the flesh. So if you live your life after the flesh, meaningless is a very accurate description of what your life will be. The book has been appropriately called The Confession of King Solomon. And I think in many ways it is. It's a confession of his life. At the end of his life, having realized he received all this great wisdom and yet made such bad decisions and chose not to use that wisdom properly, and as a result, experienced much of his life in this way, meaningless. Imagine coming to the end of your life and saying, my whole life was meaningless, and yet he had so many gifts, so many blessings. This is his confession. And the writer is clearly a man who has sinned in giving way to selfishness and sensuality. The word meaningless is used 37 times in this book. He has paid the penalty of that sin in weariness of life, but has also been under God's divine discipline. And he says so. Fortunately for him, he learns wisdom through his foolishness. You know, you can learn wisdom through foolishness, your foolishness. This is the lesson which God desired to teach him. So he has this wisdom, he acts like a fool, and he still learns wisdom through his foolishness, which is a good thing. I want you to not necessarily think about all of the foolish things you've done, but certainly you can remember a time where you said foolish things. Every once in a while, I'll be just thinking and I'll remember something I said when I was young or did when I was young, and I would say, oh, what a fool I was, you know? I guess I could sing like Jerry Vale, you know? What a fool am I? But, you know, the whole idea that we're foolish until God shows us wisdom it's, it, it's so much a part of who we are as human beings. It's like if God doesn't show your wisdom, you almost always choose the foolish thing, or is it just me? God has to give you his wisdom. And this man learned the hard way. Some of us do. Many of us have. This book is unique. It's unique in Scripture because it's, it is the only book in the Bible that reflects 
a truly human point of view. Now, the book of Job has human arguments against God's point of view. But this, the whole book, really just does that. It reflects a human point of view. That's why the theme is man's wisdom, which is meaningless. This book is filled with error, wrong thinking. Well, it's about man's wisdom. Why wouldn't it be, right? It's filled with error, and yet it's wholly inspired. Wholly inspired. Inspiration is not a guarantee of truth. I think that's one of the things we get wrong when we think of the Word of God. The whole of the Bible is inspired. It is. That God breathed Word of God. And yet not all of it is true, because think about it. When Satan lies in the garden, what he says isn't true, and yet it's the inspired Word of God. When Job's counselors counsel him with counsel that isn't appropriate, It's the inspired word of God, and yet what they're saying isn't true. When people defy God, and and, and in this case Solomon does the opposite of what he knows is right, and the things he teaches are incorrect, it's still the inspired word of God, but what he's teaching is still in error. So that's why I think you have to be very careful not to paint with a broad brush and say, and you've got to be careful, you want to say, everything the Bible says is true. We say that often. Technically not correct. Because when Satan is quoted, he lies. And there are others in the scripture that lie. It's wholly inspired. And as I've said, while filled with error, this book is wholly inspired. I think you understand the difference. Inspiration, not a guarantee of truth. It merely guarantees the accuracy from a particular point of view. And in this case, this is an accurate point of view, though the teaching is incorrect. God's point of view is always true. Amen? When it's presented in the scripture, God's words, God's teaching, the point of view that God has, always correct. Man's point of view may or may not be true. And that's why it's so important that when we read the Bible, you're very careful to look at the context. And this is why people get into trouble. Does it say in the scriptures, eat and drink, uh, eat, drink and be merry for tomorrow we die? That was a common philosophy of the Greeks and the Romans. And Paul quotes it. In context, he's refuting it. But if you just quote that one verse, you go around telling, well, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You see, that's what I'm talking about. You have to be very careful. You have to teach a book chapter by chapter, verse by verse, if you're going to understand the truth from God's point of view. Now, as we get into chapter 1, chapter 1 starts with an introduction. Again, the theme of the first six chapters, very clearly, everything's meaningless. So he's going to go through all of these different things that are meaningless. (laughs) First, let's understand this in verses 1 and 2, and we've already read them. A life lived apart from God can properly be described as meaningless. Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. He tried to find meaning by living a life apart from God. The book of 1 Kings tells us this. And with all of his wisdom, he ultimately arrived at frustration and despair. There are many people today that are frustrated. Hey, I get frustrated. Some are turning to despair because of the state of our world and the things that are going on. But you see, with God's point of view, you don't have to despair. You can have hope. And you certainly don't need to be frustrated. You can be at peace. So studying God's word, applying God's word to your heart... You should never really be frustrated or be in despair. 
No pursuit in this life can ever satisfy us or our eternal longing for God. That is an important truth. Look what he says. I'm going to read this section, and this is poetry, but it's a little different than the poetry of the Psalms or maybe a little more similar to some of the Proverbs, but it's a poetry, how can I say this, paints a pretty bleak picture, but it does so in order to shine the light. I don't know how else to explain it except that sometimes if you're painting something, you put a black background. And the reason for that is so that what's in the foreground will show more brightly. That's about the best poetic description I can give you. Look at verses 3 through 11. Here is his frustration. What does man gain from all of his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it turns to the north. Round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new, or this is something new? It was here already long ago. It was here before our time. There is no remembrance of men of old, and even those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Now, you'd be wrong to look at this and just say, oh, man, this guy is so depressed. I know when I first started studying this book, I looked at it as a, just the ramblings of a guy who's depressed. Not exactly correct. It's more that black background. Because what's going to happen, this, this poetic approach, we're going to have like 12 chapters of very dark black background so that we can get to the last part of this book and see the light. And so we're not going to take a lot of time in these chapters because that would defeat the purpose. The poetry is designed to paint a picture of life apart from God, utilizing wisdom apart from God or even man's wisdom instead of God's wisdom. So it has to be dark. By contrast, it has to be dark so that we can see the light. And as we look at this in these verses here, he tells us life is surprisingly short for men and women on this earth. At least that's how he felt. As I said, no pursuit in this life can ever satisfy us or our eternal longing for God. Nothing can satisfy us. Life is monotonous and totally unfulfilling when it's lived in this way. Scientific knowledge doesn't change anything. The earth's daily rotation, the circuit of the wind, the cycle of evaporation, which are described in these verses, scientific observations, none of it changes anything. Much learning and great accomplishment doesn't change anything either. So if you put your hope in those things, this is exactly how you're going to feel. You're going to feel that life is meaningless. And now he gets into these different descriptions in particular of things he found meaningless. That's the introduction basically saying everything's meaningless. Now I'm going to show you in detail all the things that are meaningless. We start in verse 12, reading verses 12 through 15. I, the teacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. I devoted myself to study and to explore by wisdom all that is done under the heaven. 
What a heavy burden God has laid on men. I have seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. What is twisted cannot be straightened, and what is lacking cannot be counted. And there's some accuracy to what's being said there, but again, the perspective is that of a man living apart from God. A devotion to understand the natural world apart from the spiritual world is what's being described here, and it will only end in frustration. Now remember that Solomon, Solomon had 40 years of peace in Jerusalem, 40 years of peace, and unlimited resources to study science. And with all of that, this is the conclusion he came to. He found the knowledge gained by his great wisdom was burdensome and useless. You know, I know many people that have gone to school and studied academically, and it's kind of sad. I remember one particular person who attended an Ivy League school said uh, that the experience of his education was a travesty. It was so disheartening. You, you think of these institutions as being places of great learning. And, you know, to hear that, it's like, really? It happened to be Princeton. And I was like, really? Are you serious? Yeah. That, that's what you find when you just pursue knowledge for knowledge's sake. He could only observe God's creation, for he lacked any real power to bring change. That's what his knowledge taught him. He could just watch. He really couldn't make any difference. Now, of course, Jesus is the only one that can bring real change in our lives. Amen? He's the only one that can bring real change. So if you're looking for change apart from him, you're never going to find it. Hope and change isn't hope and change unless it's in Jesus Christ. Amen? More knowledge and wisdom apart from God will only bring more sorrow and grief. Look what he says in verses 16 through 18. I thought to myself... Look, I have grown and increased in wisdom more than anyone who has, uh, who has ruled over Jerusalem before me. I have experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. And then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. In the context of pursuing these things apart from God, you're always going to come up empty. Now, this applies, as we'll see, to everything. In this particular case, we're talking about man's knowledge and wisdom. He found man's knowledge and wisdom meaningless. So, yeah, everything's meaningless. First thing, man's knowledge and wisdom, for him, meaningless. Solomon may have been the most educated man the world has ever seen. He may have been. But he found his knowledge of the human psyche, completely useless as well. You know, I've thought about this a lot. There are people who are very smart, and they study the psyche. We call them either psychologists or psychiatrists in some cases who are medical doctors. They, they treat psychological conditions in many cases or medical conditions. And I'm not knocking that because I, I really respect and appreciate psychology. It's the study of the way we think, right? Psychiatry is, again, a medical field, but So there's nothing wrong with that. But when you do that apart from God and a biblical worldview, it's useless. That's the point I guess I'm trying to make. I mean, how are you going to bring any real change apart from Jesus Christ? So, okay, so you go, you spend all this money, you talk, you talk, you talk, and then at the end they just basically say, um, well, this is your problem. Well, thanks a lot. 
I'm glad I understand my problem a whole lot better, but that doesn't necessarily help me. That's where therapy comes in. Okay? Psychotherapy, if it's based in a Christian worldview, can help you. We talked about this at the men's retreat this year because our guest speaker was a Christian counselor. It can help you process and work through your issues, but with God at the center of your life. Apart from Christ, you can do nothing. So, okay, so what? Now we know where all of your issues are, but where's the power for change going to come from? This is what Solomon came to as a conclusion. He found all of this knowledge about the human psyche completely useless as well. And then he could only understand man's thoughts. He couldn't change the way men think. Jesus is the only one that can renew our minds, changing our very thoughts, according to Romans chapter 1, right? Or chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. So think about it. Psychology is good. Wisdom and knowledge is good. Man's knowledge and man's wisdom, it's good. If placed in God's hands, you can find healing and restoration and change. But apart from that, it's meaningless. Like he says, a chasing after the wind, what would it accomplish? (laughs) Chapter 2. Now in chapter 2, we're going to see two things. That's all we're going to look at this evening. The first is that pleasure and great accomplishments are meaningless as well. There are many people that look to find meaning in knowledge and understanding and wisdom, but there are always those, always those that try to find meaning in pleasure and accomplishing great things. And of course, what Solomon is going to tell us, it's meaningless as well. Again, apart from God, it is meaningless. Look at verses 1 through 3. I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. So here he's saying, I tried these things to see if there was any meaning in them. By the way, that's like every human being that ever lived. We try these things. We think, oh, I'm going to find meaning in this. I'm going to find meaning in that. I'm going to find meaning in this thing or that thing. And we always come up short. And many people finally come to a place where they look to Jesus Christ. And then they find all the meaning they were looking for in all of those things. And some of those things which weren't sin and destructive, you find meaning in. And the things that are sinful and destructive, you find there's no meaning. And so you don't do them anymore. And this is the process of growing in Christ. But in these first few verses, we learn that a devotion to experience as much pleasure as possible will only end in frustration. Even the most pleasurable experiences become old and tiresome over time. If that weren't true, then why do things always seem to escalate when it comes to sin, especially pleasure? They never, you know, they start out mild, but they always become rather extreme over time because they become old and tiresome. The laughter experienced one day doesn't carry over to the next. I mean, there are times where something is so funny, you think about it and you laugh again. I can think of a few things that have happened, you know, funny things, and if I think about them now, I still laugh. But generally, you laugh today, you're not going to laugh tomorrow necessarily. And experimenting with alcohol and drugs may enhance the experience, and indeed it does, but you may pay the price. In fact, you will pay the price. 
Man's wisdom only led him to abuse himself as he sought his own personal fulfillment, and his despair over the brevity of life drove him to experiment with his life. There's so many people that are so depressed and in despair over how short life is. Life is short. How many times have we heard that? Life is short. Life is short. And that drives them to try to do some of these things, to try to fill their short life with meaning. And they always come up short, meaningless, meaningless. As we've said, a devotion to accomplish great things will also only end in frustration. Look at verses 4 through 9. He tells us, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers, and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. So he never lost his wisdom. It it, it wasn't so much that he, he stopped being wise. He just stopped using his wisdom properly. A devotion to great things. He was looking to find meaning and fulfillment in those things. Look, there is no end to building projects, so they never really bring fulfillment. Anyone who does a renovation on their house thinks, oh, that's it. Sure enough, next year, you know what, now that I think about it, we need to do this, or do that, or do that, or do this. There is no end to growing your business or to your wealth. So this never satisfies either, as we see. I mean, Solomon had a virtual uh, endless supply of livestock. And silver was as common as stones during his reign, the book of 2 Chronicles in chapter 9 tells us. So he was wealthy beyond belief. There is no end to entertainment, so indulgence only makes one more empty. This is what the world is experiencing. You know, I've thought a lot about why people do drugs and why they drink, but especially why they do drugs. Drugs they know could be laced with poison like fentanyl. It's got to be the excitement of rolling the dice. There has to be something in the experience that just entices people to just take it to a new level, to a new extreme. I know a lot of people are hiding. They hide in these things. They anesthetize themselves. They self-medicate. I get that. But I think the drug culture as a whole has this air of of excitement, this idea like, I'm going to do something. It's forbidden. It's wrong. I could die. It's kind of like those extreme sports, the adrenaline rush of doing something that I would never think about doing, like jumping off a mountain in one of those flying squirrel suits. The guy who was like the best at it, like basically invented this sport. I watched a documentary on his life. I found out later, he died doing what? Jumping off a mountain in a squirrel suit. Eventually he died. So, you know... I think part of what drives people to try new things and do things at a, at a more extreme level is, is boredom. And they like the excitement. Maybe not everyone, but many people. We see that was the case with Solomon. Fame and greatness never deliver the satisfaction that one expects from them either. Look at verse 9. He was very famous and great, and, and yet, with all that wisdom, he was unfulfilled. Then he tells us something, and, and this is very poetic, the way he says this here. Some of this is 
is spoken in prose, some of it's more poetic. Uh, but this particular poetry here, I like. I remember memorizing this scripture. Uh, I denied myself nothing my heart desired, or my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done, and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Even in English, that flows very well, poetically. So it really says it all. More pleasure and accomplishments apart from God will only bring despair. The sooner we realize this, the better. Solomon had everything that he ever wanted without limitation, and he found that the reward for all of his efforts and experience was little more than futility. Jesus is the only one that can satisfy our heart's desires. Amen? Filling our very souls. So again, we're contrasting the light against the dark. And there it becomes very powerful. The word of God becomes extremely powerful. We're staring into the abyss, and yet we're seeing Jesus uh, contrasted against these things, and we realize, oh my goodness, what a hope we have in Jesus. So without an eternal perspective, wisdom appears to be no better than folly or foolishness. Without an eternal perspective. Great wisdom. How many super intelligent quote-unquote, wise people in this world don't believe there's a God. Maybe most of them. Many of them certainly do. And yet the scripture tells us it's the fool that says in his heart there is no God. And granted, the Hebrew word for fool really means a person who doesn't believe in God. But it's so true. I, I know some of these people, you listen to them talk, and I say to myself, how could such a smart person be so foolish, so, so silly, so ridiculously foolish? Well, that's what happens. When you have that apart from God. Verses uh, 12 through 16 make that clear. Here we know that what he's trying to communicate, again, is that wisdom and even foolishness, all of it's meaningless. He says, Then I turn my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise man has eyes in his head while the fool walks in darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I thought in my heart, the fate of the fool will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said in my heart, this too is meaningless. For the wise man like the fool will not be long remembered. In days to come, both will be forgotten. Like the fool, the wise man too must die. And you see, that's, that's man's wisdom apart from an eternal perspective. Of course he's going to despair. Of course he's going to find life meaningless. It's the only experience you can possibly have under those circumstances. Solomon never lost the gift of wisdom that God gave him. He just stopped seeking God with it. So important to see that. He then became dissatisfied with his own life and chose to rebel against God and his ways. Obsessed with an earthly perspective, he lost sight of the advantages of being wise. This is the inevitable fate of any that abandon wisdom for a life of folly. Finally, in the last section we're going to look at this evening, Verses 17 through 26 tell us this. Solomon tells us that working hard is meaningless as well. 
Now, now, wait a minute. The Bible says in Proverbs that being a hard worker is a good thing, but, but that's in the context of a biblical worldview. That's in the context of serving God. But when you take yourself out of that, working hard is meaningless. What does it accomplish? That's where he, he, he brings us this, this time. Verses 17 through 23. So I hated life. Now, that's really interesting because I remember I used to say to people back in my 20s, they used to say, hey, how you doing? And people would be like, I'm hating life. That was like a phrase. Hating life. Why are you hating life? Oh, man, I can't pay my car payments. I'm hating life. Imagine, it's a horrible way to live. I hate life. Well, life's all you have. You hate life. Verse 17, so I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool, yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This too is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a man may do his work with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then he must leave all he owns to someone who has not worked for it. This too is meaningless and a great misfortune. What does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving with which he labors under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. This too is meaningless. (laughs) See, if you study this book the wrong way, man, you're really going to get depressed. But if you look at it properly, you're going to be encouraged to draw near to God. And I'm hoping to teach it that way. (laughs) A devotion to work and earthly labor, remember, a devotion to these things, will only end in frustration. That's what he found out. And many people do find that out today as well. Without an eternal purpose, being a hard worker only brings material things. So you become a materialist. And we all know that where that leads, nowhere. Because you have to die and leave it behind. Solomon was wise enough to know that he couldn't take material things with him in death. He was wise enough to know that. You know, it's almost like too much knowledge and wisdom not surrendered to God is worse than having none. Because now you know too much. Anybody ever said that to you? I know too much. It's like you know too much, and now you have to be responsible with that knowledge, and if you're not, boy, it becomes a horrible life. You hate life. In fact, he was succeeded by his son Rehoboam after his death, and unfortunately for Israel, Rehoboam indeed was a fool. So the very thing he was concerned about, it happened. All of his hard work only brought him despair because he was only thinking of himself. If you are a materialist and you work really hard and you're only thinking of yourself, the great despair in life is you can't take it with you. But if you live your life thinking, wow, I can can build up treasure in heaven by giving to others and meeting others' needs, then that you can take with you into the presence of God as good works. And people that have so much, many of them, even those that are ungodly, have come to the conclusion, you know, I have to be responsible with what I have. I know there have been great examples like Colgate. He was one of the guys that, you know, became wealthy and, and a, a spiritual guy, decided to give a lot back. Even some people that aren't so spiritual have figured out, you know what, like, they invest in causes they believe in, even if I don't agree with them. Uh, there are very wealthy people that do that. At least you can find meaning in that. But to hoard it, it's like the old fool, you know, who says, oh, I know what I'll do. My, my belongings don't fit in my barns. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And of course, Jesus made it clear, you know, fool, your soul is going to be required 
of you this evening. So if you're coming to the end of your life, and by the way, some of us may be in the presence of Jesus, even if we're young, God forbid, but, you know, if that's God's will, you don't have to be, my grandmother said it this way, you don't have to be old to die. But even especially as we get older, you know, I've been thinking about this lately, not in a morbid way, and not in a stressful or anxiety type way. I just think to myself, oh, 20 years from now, you know, I'll probably still be alive. 40 years, probably not. You know, it's, you start to think it through. You're like, oh, okay. But see, I'm okay because I have a hope, an eternal hope in Jesus Christ. I'm not worried about what's on the other side. And quite frankly, I don't necessarily want to live another 40 years. I, if God wills, okay, what can I do? But, but that, that's not my goal. My goal is to live a quality life now for Jesus Christ and live for others. And in that, you find meaning. Try to do it the other way. You're going to be finding life to be meaningless at chasing after the wind. So if you think of only yourself, good luck. It's not going to mean much. Not going to amount to anything. So without the motivation of an eternal reward, hard work just seemed to be a waste of time. And indeed it is in that way. Finally, in verses 24 through 26, this is the conclusion he comes to. And this is a good conclusion. So now he's going to bring us the light against the darkness. Are you ready? Verse 24. A man can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in his work. This too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the man who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. So you see the perspective? It's a, it's, it's a person at the end of their life on the other side, having learned the lesson, looking back and teaching us from their experience. It's not someone promoting incorrect teaching. It's correct teaching when interpreted properly. Because he's teaching the consequences of a life lived apart from God, strictly based on man's wisdom, that it's meaningless. And that's true. Even though the things he's saying many times don't sound true when they're isolated, in the grand scheme of things, the book of Ecclesiastes is true. Are you with me? So important that you understand that. This is why I don't like to take one scripture, one verse, one, one paragraph and teach it. Uh, eisegesis, you know, you take that one isolated passage and just teach on that. Exegesis is taking the whole context so that you're teaching something that makes sense. A devotion to God makes hard work satisfying and brings contentment. That is true. When we are serving God in our work, we can find tremendous fulfillment in him. I do, not just in being a pastor, but even in my, my work when I was in the corporate world, I found tremendous fulfillment. The rebellious sinner forfeits the earthly and eternal rewards of a life lived for God. It is truly futile to live your life apart from Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us what's right and what's wrong. Sometimes we need to look at what's wrong in order to understand what's right. And so, Lord, I pray that you continue to give us wisdom as we study this precious book in your word. May we know that everything apart from you is meaningless, but living for you, that's the purpose of eternity. Worshiping you, that's the purpose that we were built for and made for. And when we step outside of our intended usage, (laughs) 
When we step away from the desire to do what you've built us to do, created us to do, made us to do, of course we're going to come up short. So may we live our lives for you, recognizing you came and died on the cross for our sins and rose again on the third day. Lord, that you're coming again to judge the living and the dead, and that as many as received you, to those who believed on your name, you've given them, all of us, the right to be called and to become the children of God. And there's nothing meaningless about that. In fact, all the meaning of the universe can be experienced in a relationship with you through your son, Jesus. I pray for, pray for every heart here and all those listening. May we always live our lives for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.